Welcome to This Week in the Warner Archive Collection, where we discuss our newest releases. I'm George Feltenstein, and I'm proud to be joined by my colleagues, Matt Patterson and D.W. Ferranti. Ten tantalizing treats await you as they become the ten newest additions to the Warner Archive Collection for this week's Warner Archive podcast. First and foremost, the best news is when we have something new to Blue, and a favorite of genre horror fans is coming to Blu-ray for the very first time in a brand new 2019 1080p HD master. That is Frankenstein 1970, starring Boris Karloff, made not in 1970, but made in 1958, looking forward out to the far future date of 1970. And this is a film we had on DVD previously, and now it has been remastered for Blu-ray. Next, for TV on DVD, we tend to be a little animated as we jump up and down in glee for something new from Hanna-Barbera, and that is Pawpaws, the complete series from 1985 and 86. Then we have classics for you Metro-Golden-Mare fans from the 1930s and 40s. We have Bridal Suite from 1939, The Mighty McGurk from 1947 and Little Mr. Jim from the same year. Then we come back to Burbank for Warner Brothers classics from the 1930s, starting with The Heart of New York from 1932, Over the Goal from 1937, Sweepstakes winner from 1939, and also from that immeasurable, incredible year of motion picture making, The Cowboy Quarterback. 1939. And then last but not least, back in print on DVD is the miniseries that set tongues a-wagon in the early 90s. This is Sinatra from 1992 with actor Philip Kasnoff portraying Old Blue Eyes in his life story, executive produced by his daughter Tina. So a large lineup to discuss. Let us begin to opine and salute one of the most interesting films that ever associated Boris Karloff with Frankenstein. Frankenstein, 1970 from 1958. It's a very interesting Allied Artist B picture. I mean, just for start off, it's got Boris Karloff in it, so it's worth your time. Always worth your time. That guy is just phenomenal in everything. But this movie is meta before the meta was meta. Uh, It's before Meta Met Meta. Yeah. It was was inspired by a real-life thing that happened on the radio where uh, they did a broadcast from Frankenstein's Castle. And, of course, there wasn't really a Frankenstein's Castle. It's a tourist trap. It was Frankenstein. But uh, uh, this broadcaster, Mm. uh, they decided to pull some pranks on him because it was a Halloween night broadcast. And the broadcaster didn't know they were going to pull pranks on him, and he fainted on the air. And you can actually find this clip on the internet if you want to hear it. It's kind of funny and kind of terrible. That is really good. Uh, So the setup for this thing is uh, someone wants to make a movie about Frankenstein, and they're going to shoot it in Frankenstein's castle with the help of Frankenstein's grandson, who is played by Boris Karloff, who has been coincidentally horribly disfigured and tortured by the Nazis. So you know he's going to be stable and accommodating. And he needs something very, very specific from the modern world. Eyeballs. And? A cyclotron. (laughs) Nuclear power. Because this is a nuclear Frankenstein. So there's some great back and forth. Like, the film has this great opening that's, like, straight out of a hammer Frankenstein. It it is And then it has has the pullback. Kaput! Cut! Make that guy stop! And then we sort of have this interplay between there's a film within a film, and then there's bitterness within bitterness, and then there's sort of uh, buried secrets within legends within... And this is where it gets very meta. At the same time, of course, it's still... A B-movie picture with sci-fi and horror elements and Boris Karloff chewing the scenery as only he can. And it was almost 20 years 
since Boris Karloff had associated himself with anything that was related to Frankenstein because he portrayed Frankenstein's monster in Son of Frankenstein in 1939 at Universal and then would have nothing to do with the franchise for many years thereafter, despite very ardent pleas to the contrary. He didn't want to be typecast, and uh, he avoided any association. So by 1958, this was such a unique and different concept that he was intrigued by the idea. And at the same time, there was a whole new generation of people discovering the classic universal horror movies, courtesy of their release to television in 1956. Right. I mean, there was a whole Frankenstein resurgence going on here between... Uh, of all the, the universals, yeah, between the universals and the hammers, and then I was a teenage right. Frankenstein. And this was clearly compelling. The other wonderful difference is, of course, it's in super duper widescreen. It's in Cinemascope. And the miracle you see without glasses. We also saw this with Allied Artists' Queen of Outer Space, which this uh, was a double feature with. I saw an ad. What a crazy double feature you could recreate in your very own DVD. Uh, and Blu-ray, because we have, of course, Blu-rays and DVDs. Of both films? Yeah. Is there any uh, commentary on this? There is not just a commentary, but a commentary led by the one, the only Mr. Tom Weaver. Who, speaking of Queen of Outer Space. He is the yep. man who yep. understands the true meaning of an emotional splice. That's <laughs> <laughs> still true. <laughs> That's a private joke between Tom and I. Just to put that in context with that other contemporaneous film, because if you like the over-the-top nature of Queen of Outer Space, then this is certainly a film for you. You know, Howard uh, Koch, we were talking about this film, he didn't feel like he brought his A-game to it. And if you mm -hmm. look him up, he had a definite A-game. Mm -hmm. But he said, but you know what? Compare our pictures from then to stuff coming out now, and he said this in the 80s, you know, and they still stand up. And he's right. This grabs your attention much like a sort of mummy Frankenstein reaches and grabs you and brings you into the vault. It's also like, like if you want to tool around in the past for something that is ripe for a remake, this is it. <laughs> I mean, shooting That's... a reality show in Frankenstein's right. castle with the real monster coming back to life. Now, beyond that aspect of 1970 that it's TV, didn't really predict the 70s too well. No, it was pretty much Frankenstein 1958. Yeah, it was. Uh, 1970, I think, was more designed to get you in the door. And stay there you will with this film because <laughs> it's eminently watchable twice because you should watch it a second time with the just to listen to yep. the commentary because Tom is joined by special guests. And it's really a great commentary for a very, very specific group of fans that really dig on this movie. It's got a big cult following and our modern motto at the Warner Archive is something for everyone, something for every taste, and Frankenstein 1970 has definitely got a big fan following. I thought it was Google Gobble One of Us. That's only when we're in a freaky mood. Well, this next uh, Speaking release. of free being in a freaky <laughs> mood, get your freak on for Hanna-Barbera's Paw Paws, the complete series. This comes from 1985-1986 when Hanna-Barbera were doing lots of cutesy things on TV. Although this is squarely in the post-Smurf world yes. has a storytelling edge to it that is kind of surprising. I mean, there's well, sort of it, a... It's the concurrent. Everything was very Smurfy. Now, yeah, but but first time. of all, hats off to naming a show after Native America's only uh, fruit. Indigenous fruit. Indigenous fruit. My family is actually obsessed with pawpaws, and they actually grow them because it is the most overlooked American And yet the show fruit. is not about fruit. No, 
but named after a Native American tribe of cuddly bears. Tiny bears. Tiny bears who can not only summon elemental spirits at their will, but can summon what I would sort of describe as a totem pole Voltron. Their their basic mission is to aid the small and the weak in the forest. There's an evil tribe known as the Minos, where they, and they're led by an evil wizard named Darkpaw, who's voiced by Stanley Ralph Ross. And if you're mm-hmm. a friend of the uh, Adam West Batman show, that's a voice that will sound now, familiar Now, let me to you. ask you, Dan, uh, speaking of voice talent, there are some familiar voices that also can be heard on this show as well, correct? Uh, Ruth Buzzy? That is recognizable. Especially to you Laugh-In fans. Every season, Hanna-Barbera would try to come up with something new. Some things would last, you know, one year, 13 episodes. Some would be a little more. This was popular for a while. And, and it, it holds up. and It, you it know, holds up really well. And it's got Scatman Crothers. So, yeah. you know, it's worth listening to. This is did not suffer from overexposure as no, some no. of the other uh, characters have. So it could be totally new to you. Now, we can't forget that Hanna-Barbera got their start as animators at Metro-Golden-Mayer. So what a wonderful segue. Elegant segue. To talk mm. about MGM classics that we're bringing to DVD for the first time. And I can also say that all three of these movies are making their home entertainment debut because they were never on VHS. They were never available at all, but now they're available from the Warner Archive collection on DVD for the first time. From 1939, we have Bridal Suite. Robert Young playing a sort yes. of Robert Montgomery character. <laughs> but but doing it but, well. But doing it Bob Young style. He keeps on missing his own wedding. And It's o- a unique problem. Yeah, he's got a unique problem. So in order to explain his leaving his fiancée at the altar, his mother decides that he suffers from amnesia. Right. So then they have to prove it. In order to keep the inheritance. In order to keep the inheritance. So he has to go off to a a Swiss psychiatrist. He has to go to Switzerland. He's got to go to the asylum, and he's got to be treated for his condition. And, of course, there's an inn that's run by the ward of the psychiatrist who catches his eye, and thus, romance. And this is a very special kind of romance because the star, Annabella, is a, a fascinating character because she had come over from France to star in American films, but her career had kind of fallen flat. And this is, I think, the first Annabella film I had seen, but she left quite an impression on me. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the reason it's the first you've seen is she was at 20th Century Fox with her brief marriage to Tyrone, Tyrone. Power. Yeah. Annabella she, had a fella at... Fox, and she made a couple of pictures there, and then after this, it was bye-bye Annabella. And, you know, the war interrupted a lot of lives of people who, you know, like, she had really left uh, France right at, like, the right time. Yeah, it was a good time to not be there. Yeah. In this film, it's just very charming. But they're very charming together, and this is a real delightful confection. And there's an avalanche and a kidnapping. Oh, yeah. Who could ask for anything more? Our next MGM film is from 1947, starring one of the biggest stars at the studio for over two decades, and uh, big both in physical stature as well as in his box office appeal. And he made so many films for the studio during the 30s and 40s. This is, of course, Wallace Beery, who stars as the Mighty McGurk, a 1947 MGM release. What did you think of this film? This film is a really fascinating film because in the cast, you have classic old-school players like Beery and Aline McMahon, Mm -hmm. but you also have a very young Cameron Mitchell and a very much younger Dean Stockwell. Oh, Dean is great. So, so it's a very much sort of like you're witnessing sort of a crossover 
of old Hollywood into contemporary Hollywood. Well, Dean Stockwell had established himself as really a juvenile star on the rise at MGM during the mid-40s. Most impressively, his performance in Anchors Away with Gene Kelly and Frank Sinatra as Catherine Grayson's nephew. And uh, he was adorable in that picture and made a lot of pictures after that. But then, of course, he was one of those rare child stars that segued into to adulthood and with, beyond. with a real strong career and great respect. That's why it's so fascinating to see him at such a young age. And uh, it is said, and Jackie Cooper kind of confirmed this, that Wallace Beery did not like kids yeah. and didn't like working with and, children. But that is not but, visible on the screen. No, but Hollywood sure loved pairing him up with kids. Oh, but, all the time. But the, the basic plot is that he doesn't like kids and doesn't want them and Dean Stockwell plays an orphan English boy who charms him. Basically, the Dean Stockwell kid, the little nipper, adopts him instead yeah. of the other way around. He's a, a doorman and, and a local tourist attraction. is a former heavyweight contender. and uh, Who's and, suffering from an imposter syndrome. Yes, and he works for the local fixer who controls the saloon traffic. And uh, Cameron Mitchell, who is, of course, pretty much more known, older Cameron Mitchell for playing heavies, right. is a bright, freshly shaved, young Salvation Army crusader who wants to clean up the neighborhood. And he's quite good in it, but it's very surprising to see Cameron Mitchell playing the ingenue. Well, he did that in other films that right, we have this, out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and this is, of course, supposed to be a, a vintage Bowery picture. You know, so it, it took place... 20 years or 30 years before this was filmed. So it was a period piece at the time. I think 40 years. Or 40, I guess yeah. 1900, yeah. yeah. I was going like, wait, wait a minute. Uh, I was just uh, doing it in my head. You I was were, like, was there a were, car? You were confusing my time frame. But, <laughs> Sorry, um, that's my job. As successful as Dean Stockwell's career was as a young juvenile at MGM and went on for many years and he grew up into being a fine adult actor, the same cannot be said for the star of our next film, Jackie Butch Jenkins who had a very brief career at MGM as they were trying to build him up into a new child star. And uh, his career rose and set within a very brief period of time. And Little Mr. Jim was a vehicle designed around his talent because he was going to be irresistibly cute. But he is. And I was surprised by how effective this film was because it was uh, based off of a, a book called Army Brat, and it starts off with this cute little Moppet who's like Tom Sawyer, kind of like running scams it, on all the it's kids. It's kind of three films in one, because yeah. there's sort of the army life hijinks. Before. Then there is an unspeakable tragedy. Horrible tragedy. And then there's a drama in which a father has basically checked out, leaving the family a uh, cook, played by a Chinghua Lee to care for the son, which then leads to uh, a, a, a moment, a crisis, a moment of, of parental come to Jesus. And this fascinating and, you know, it's sort of in it leaps one way than the other, but a cross-cultural pollination, which is kind of ahead of its time for 1947. And James Craig plays the dad, and it's a kind of dark role in James Craig. It is dark. Didn't play that a lot, but he plays it well in this. And Ching Wali, who, I don't know, Flower Drum Song, probably most famous, Good Earth, but uh, I think. if you research this guy in real life, extraordinary human being, instrumental in San Francisco's Chinatown history, but I'll let you discover that alone. He's really, really good in this, and... 
the relationship between the cook and Butch is really, really, it's very forward thinking for the time. There's a lot more here than you would expect. And then the happy ending, historically, is a very sad ending. actually kind of uh, turns out to be dark historically. Well, without giving away any spoilers, one thing I will say is that this film surprisingly has a relatively vocal fan base. They've, we've you, gotten a lot of requests for this film, and that's why we're so happy to bring it to you. Now we go back to Burbank here, and what was going on on this lot almost 90 years ago. It's 1932 for the first film, The Heart of New York, which wasn't filmed in New York. It was filmed <laughs> probably here in Burbank, although they could have shot some of it on the Sunset Studios. We yeah. don't know for sure, but it looks like most of our New York sets here on the a lot. And uh, what it is is one of the rare film opportunities to see the vaudeville team of Smith and Dale Mm -hmm. in leading roles. Who come to you from hunger. (laughs) Ray. Yeah, Smith and Dale, who we've talked to a couple of times before, they're the lead comedic support in this Mm -hmm. tale, which is about uh, it's very much about the Jewish experience in the Lower East Side, sort of uh, both surprising and then with the passage of time, uh, slightly disconcerting when we see how things are depicted. But at its heart, it's a family story about a young family and the father wants to be an inventor and no one believes in him, but he strikes it rich only to have it all and almost lose it all. And what's interesting about this film is that with one rare exception being Daryl Zanuck, who at that time actually was uh, head of production at Warner Brothers. The movie moguls, the studios were run by Jewish immigrants. And mostly from New York. The portrayal of, well, from Eastern Europe, yeah, then yeah, New yeah. York, through, or through the- however. But the point is that these moguls that were running the studios very rarely, if ever, had films with Jewish characters right. in them. They avoided them consciously. There are notable exceptions, like most notably the jazz singer but the heart of New York was again the Warner Brothers were doing stories ripped from the headlines and not afraid to be the workman the the people's studio if you will and this is a story of the ghetto of the the Jewish ghetto in New York and the Lower East Side and the heart of New York and it is a film with heart and uh, it has some very memorable performances and it is a timepiece I'm sure they threw in some location photography that they let the Vitaphone studio in in Brooklyn handles some of the uh, exterior shots. Well, if you've ever visited the Lower East Side Museum in New York City, uh, that's sort of my connection to going into the buildings and taking the historic tours. And uh, that's kind of where my head was in watching this, yeah. kind of tying it all this together. Is, you know, this, this film is almost 90 years old, and you're getting a view of yeah. what life was like at that time. Right. And, uh, it's a snapshot. It's, it's really a cultural piece. The next film couldn't be totally disparate. (laughs) This is Over the Goal from 1937, and, uh, the title kind of tells you that this is a sports-themed film and one with a little bit of humor added to it. And music. From none other than Johnny Scat Davis. Someone we've talked about before on this podcast most recently. He has a fun role in this. He plays uh, the collegiate kind of comedy sidekick, but helping his friend get back into the fold because his friend is the star quarterback and the college needs to win this game to stay solvent, but his girlfriend, the star quarterback's girlfriend says, you can't play the game, you know, because you could get injured. And he says, okay, I won't. No, well, I mean, he's told by his girlfriend's father, who's the doctor, the team doctor, that 
if you get injured again, that could be it for you. So right. he steps down, not knowing about this behind-the-scenes arrangement between a benefactor and his college and its rival, and they need to beat their rival college three times in a row. And if he leaves now, they're going to lose the bet, and they desperately need it for the endowment to work. Uh, it's kind of funny that the, the really rich and powerful school is the state school. <laughs> <laughs> Which tells you how bad things were back in 1937. Yeah. Well, but it also tells you that uh, schools constantly need money. That's right, they do. And they need to get them from the right places and not the wrong people. Yep. A topical reference will be dated soon. If you listen to this podcast in 2021, you won't even know what we're talking about. Well, But in 2019, it's, it's a, a scandal. It's an outrage. Sure. But that has nothing to do with this film. But one thing this film does provide is a connection to the next film because it also features Johnny Scat Davis <laughs> from 1939. This is Sweepstakes winner, co-starring the lovely Marie Wilson. And we have horse racing this time. That's right. Which, you know, we've got two footballs and a horse racing. In this one, the stakes are high because there are also scammers. And who are the scammers, Dan? About time we got to why the film is important. I, I know I was getting to it. Uh, I knew you okay, were just going to He's going to say it now. Go ahead. Say it. The scammers are played by uh, Charlie Foy of the Foys. And yes. most importantly... Alan Jenkins. Dun, 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 there you have it. We were waiting for the Jenkins. Alan Jenkins is the star? He plays Tip Bailey, and Charlie Ford played Jinx Donovan. And they're, Jinx. They're, it's a good name for this pair of scammers because they have good tips and they're jinxed. They're terrible at their job of scamming. Now, if you're new to the Warner Archive podcast, this will come as a surprise to you. But if you are a longtime listener, you'll know that Dan has a slightly um, strong, a fixation on Alan Jenkins. It's not because he was the voice of Orf Officer Dibble. Doesn't hurt. It, it doesn't hurt, but just Alan Jenkins transfixes Dan, and any film with Alan Jenkins is just, you know, it takes on a whole gold. new perspective. It's gold. But keeping within the sports theme, our next film, Cowboy Quarterback, from 1939, features half of one of the great comedy teams that's a favorite of the Warner Archive. The comedy team of Wheeler and Woolsey became no longer a comedy team with the premature death of Robert Woolsey. And Burt Wheeler was left alone without a partner. And uh, it's rare that you got to see him again after he lost his partner. But Cowboy Quarterback is one of the few films that he made without Woolsey. He's playing kind of a Joey Brown style yeah, it's role very here. Oh, this yeah. could have been an old it's, Joey Brown it, script. It, it, it yeah, really it does read that way. He's a western Montana yokel who's the best natural born field runner there is. And he gets recruited by William Demarest to play ball for the Packers. Yes, and uh, in he, Chicago. He's in love with uh, the local shopkeeper from his town, which is played by Marie Wilson. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of crossover in these films. Only he gets to the big city and he gets a bit of a swelled head and he writes for a Dear John letter only to discover that perhaps that's not the thing to do. And there's a big game and... Uh, Hijinks and Sue, and, as and, I like and to say. And the mob and a gambling debt and some fisticuffs. And of course... William Demarest chewing a cigar. And there's a lot of... Uh poor betting sportsmanship in 1930s yep. sports movies. Well, you have to remember that these films were all the second half of Double Bills. These were all, Warner had a B unit and Warner B Pictures still had the benefit of this fantastic factory and yep. all the talented people that worked as right. part of it. And also playing sort of the foil in this is uh, William Hopper, who is, of course, the lead football player in Over the Goal and, of course, is 
most familiar to fans of Perry Mason. These four films are also like the MGMs. These are making their home video debut. They've never been available before. They're now yours to own wherever you find our delightful products online. Last but not least for the lineup this week is a double DVD set that is now back in print. This is quite a remarkable achievement to capture the life story of Frank Sinatra as a miniseries. The task fell upon his daughter, Tina, who had a production deal here on the lot. And uh, her father was very much alive and supportive of this production. And actor Philip Kasnoff plays the role of Sinatra. He had been in other films in the 80s, and this was kind of set to be a big break for him. But he was really, really impressive. But nonetheless, the vocals were true Sinatra vocals on the soundtrack. So the music abounds. The story is very, very realistic. It doesn't try to hide anything or or shade anything. It's very, very honest. And it was well-received at the time mm-hmm. of its release, but it's been out of print for so long that copies are going for huge amounts of money if you can find one, but not anymore because we've brought it back in print and you can get it on DVD from the Warner Archive. No so, longer hard to find. Uh, Sinatra is the title and that says it all and uh, we hope that you'll enjoy it. Now, one of the things we want to do since we're celebrating our 10th birthday and this is 10 years of Warner Archive, today we're going to focus on dog movies. Now, we have released all sorts of movies that have dogs as the center of the theme of the film or maybe have notable dog appearances in them. And it doesn't hurt that the three of us are all very much canine lovers to the extreme. The movies have always had a love affair with dogs. And I remember my first day in film school, the dean of our film department said, uh, it's an old joke, but it's true. Put kids or dogs in your film and it'll be a hit. And uh, he was a documentary filmmaker, so (laughs) I thought that was odd that he would be making a reference to uh, classic Hollywood filmmaking, but it's true that that dogs He could have have made dog documentaries. I mean, it's still happening in contemporary cinema, but if you go back and look at the films that we have available, one film that immediately jumped into my head, because it isn't as well-known, but it's got a huge fan base, is It's a Dog's Life from 1955, a.k.a. The Bar Sinister. And this is a film starring Edmund Gwen and features a very unique dog and the film is told from the dog's point of view. Speaking of Cameron Mitchell. That's right. Cameron mm-hmm. Mitchell's in the movie as well as the famous original Jeff Richards. I, I thought you were going to say Cameron Mitchell is a dog who talks, but apparently that's not the case. Dan, what's uh, one of your favorite dog movies? Well, I had I have a long list and I won't go into detail. Oh, but let's let's name a few. But it's a dog's life was definitely on right here. I mean, there are the also the films we brought back in print, like Lassie Come Home, which is the quintessential. Yeah, quintessential. I, I, uh, challenge to Lassie. Uh, there's the Doberman Gang movies. Doberman Gang is that that's like, a whole different look. Uh, at also, yes. also they only kill their they masters. They only kill their masters. Because, you know, uh, uh, Dogville. Dogville the, the pack, of course. Now, yes. There's one that people expect me to say, but I'm going to go and say the other one people oh, what's, expect me to say. What's the other one? Which is one of my favorite films of all time, Goodbye, My Lady. What do you what love about excellent that? excellent 
I had a Basenji when I was little, so this movie just makes me it cry. Was, this is one that it's hard to get through without weeping, and I will tell you that uh, is directed by one, one of my favorite directors, William Wellman, and Bill Wellman Jr. told me that the family actually owned that dog. Yeah, no, no Wellman fell so in love with the dog when they were making the movie, he adopted it. Yeah, so that, that was Bill Wellman Jr.'s dog growing up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, that was a Bat-Jack production. It was produced by John Wayne's production company, and uh, it is not the first film that rolls off the tongue when people talk about dog movies, but it should be, because it is so moving and such a brilliantly made film, because it's made by Wellman. And it doesn't do what half the dog movies do. Which is? Kill the dog. Well, you know what other dog movie doesn't kill the dog? The Littlest Hobo. In fact, that dog is a hero. Especially in Canada. I I feel the top of 1958 cinema list. If you like dogs, if you like action, if you like noir. It is the only noir film. If you like sheep. It's the only noir film to star a dog. And that's why it has a happy ending. Basically, it's a story about a dog who jumps off the rails, literally, and saves a sheep from slaughter, which it turns out it's a, it's a kid's favorite pet sheep, and the dog saves it and runs through Los Angeles, pursued by the police and by bad guys, and takes the sheep to some of the darkest parts of the city, yet ultimately sees the light. I could not recommend this film more. And it was one of our little discoveries that we like yeah. to dig so up and, and uh, bring forward to the people. I tried to actually bring copies of this to film noir festivals because I want people uh, who love film noir to see it because I don't think that they would believe their eyes when they see it. it it's a weeper. And in a more traditional sense, there's also Lada Dog from 1962. Uh, we yeah. mastered that. Also good. The lovely Angela Cartwright. There are just so many wonderful films, not to mention our animated dogs. Road Rovers. And of course, Dan mentioned briefly the Dogville comedies that were made at MGM in 1930 and 31. Which, the work of Zion Myers and the great Jules White. Which two means, Stupid Dogs. Yeah, to, oh, Two Stupid Dogs is good. But Dogville is an idea because it's like Mad Magazine does goes to the movies, but Starring actual dogs. Yeah, because the the shorts are parodies of current movies of of the the era. So you see the big dog house is a spoof of the big house. And the dogway melody is a spoof of the Broadway melody and so forth and so on. And you really haven't lived unless you've seen a bunch of dogs in raincoats performing singing in the rain. Now, the important (laughs) thing to note is that these films were very popular with audiences. People of more recent times think that the dogs were being abused that isn't true. The dogs were treated humanely and they were trained dogs. They put peanut butter on their mouths to make them bark. And dogs they love peanut butter. Post- dubbed them. The reason they stopped making the shorts were they were so expensive to make. And they were a product of the early sound era. But it was one of the first things we did in the early years of the Warner Archive collection was to release all the Dogville shorts in a collection and it's still available for you to own on DVD. So if you want to sit with your dog and have a lot of fun we have a plethora of dog films for you to choose from. You can even see Lassie be part of Jeanette McDonald's life. Right. In the the sun sun comes up. up. 
which is the first film to be scored by the recently deceased Andre Previn, who scored it at age 19. A great film. I really love that movie. So if you're a dog lover, we have lots to choose from. We also want to call your attention, as always, and we do this on every podcast, that Warner Archive is not just about DVDs and Blu-rays. If you're digitally oriented or you're like me and you are both digital and physical, you can enjoy the best of both worlds by going to the Warner Archive room on iTunes. You go to iTunes.com backslash Warner Archive, or if you're in the iTunes store on the app, Just click on Classics and look for the Warner Archive swoosh down below, and you'll find classic movies from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, even going up to the 70s and beyond, along with television shows and animated cartoons, as well as soundtracks from our friends at Water Tower Music. Some of the soundtracks from our Warner Archive releases are even there. And, of course, our nearly 400 podcasts that date back to the beginning of the Warner Archive in 2009, they're all there for free. So you can just listen to our podcast all day and it won't cost you a dime. But go to the Warner Archive room on iTunes for entertainment galore. Now it's time for the part of the podcast where we share a letter from you, the listener, the consumer who communicates to us via U.S. mail with a stamp on a letter. We like our letters to be written in crayon if possible, but we're not fussy, especially at this point. And if you want to send us a letter, Matt, where can people send the letters to? Please send your letters to Warner Archive Podcast, 3400 Riverside Drive, B160-4, Burbank, California, 91522. Today's letter comes from Bob from Rahway. New Jersey. Yes, Rahway, New Jersey. You can't, you know, not everybody knows oh, Rahway I'm sorry. is from New Jersey. Matt is from New Jersey, so he just assumes that you everybody know where knows. Yeah, I thought it was North Carolina. There's a prison like, there. Like Raleigh. Hey guys, longtime listener, first time letter writer. I thought I would send a note on your birthday to congratulate you on your 10 years on Earth. To think most of us didn't even have a smartphone or even Facebook. But more tragically, we didn't have any way to see films as diverse as Green Slime or Anne of Green Gables. And now we do, and Uber, and Lime Scooters, etc., etc. Thanks again, Bob from New Jersey. Well, thank you, Bob. And, and also, that's really wonderful because we could just do a podcast of all our films with green in the title. <laughs> <laughs> green slime, green dolphin yeah. street, yeah. the green years. How green was my valley? Not our film. Dang. Oh well. <laughs> Anything, but, anybody starring gr- anybody with green in the last name? Screenplays by Betty Connum and Adolph Green. You, you know, see? I mean, like it just goes endless. In any case, thank you for taking the time to send us that lovely letter. Yes, we just celebrated our tenth birthday, and we're starting year eleven off with a great deal of exciting releases. We've shared a little bit of what's coming today, but in future weeks, you're going to be in for some big surprises. But until that time, I'm George Feldenstein. I'm Matt Patterson. I'm Strudel. He schnapps. Thanks for listening to today's Warner Archive Collection podcast.